Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. It'll be weird integrating or having uh, people with large age gaps working together in the workforce. Mm. So you could imagine some like 22 year old uh, having to be on a team, say at Facebook, with a 110 year old. You could just imagine how there could be a lot of tension between the generations working together. So I, I, I think that that actually will be a problem. Hello, it's Danielle Smith once again. Welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I am so delighted to be speaking to a person who was, I think, one of the original interns at the Fraser Institute all the way back in the mid-90s. I followed her in the internship program. Her name is Sonia Arison. She's gone on to be a technology analyst and venture capitalist, 100 Plus Capital is the name of the company that she has founded. And she's a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. And she joins me now. Sonia, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here, Daniel, and nice to see you. So l- let's begin by by talking about a, a book that really, uh, I think, launched you firmly in this space, was very popular, 100 plus, How the Coming Age of Longevity Will Change Everything from Careers and Relationships to Families and Faith. Where did you get the idea first to, to do this book? Because I'm interested in knowing uh, as well how much of what you predicted might happen is actually happening in reality. Because I think when you probably began writing it, a lot of it would have been perspective technology. And now we're in the middle of some pretty amazing innovations. So where did the idea come from in the first place? Right. Yeah. So um, I live in Silicon Valley in California, and um, I was working at a think tank uh, doing uh, doing research on technology and public policy. And um, But being here in Silicon Valley, I made friends with a lot of uh, computer scientists and hackers and things. And um, it was around the year 2000 when the um, first draft of the human genome was sequenced. And I don't know if you remember, but Bill Clinton and Tony Blair got on stage and they said, oh, we have the code for life. This will change everything. And everyone thought it would change everything. Uh, and, and in fact, it has, but it took a little longer than everyone thought it would. And there's a reason for that. But And we can go back to that. But um, at that time, uh, some of my super talented hacker friends, I, I went over to one of, uh, one of uh, the home of a hacker friend and he had all these intro to biology books all over his living room floor. <laughs> and, and I'm like kind of looking at it going, what are you doing? Are you, you know, thinking about a career change? And he's like, no, Sonia. He's like, today I'm hacking computer code. Tomorrow I'm gonna be hacking biological code. Oh, and, wow. and that just kind of hit me. And I was, I was like, wow, really? So, so tell me more about this. <laughs> and, and, then I, and, and then I started digging in and, uh, you know, discovered all this nanotech stuff and smart bombs and, uh, that you can use inside your body and, uh, to kill cancer and, and, and all these different cool things that really sounded like they were going to change uh, the future of medicine and, and healthcare. And I got super excited and um, really spent a lot of time uh, digging in. And at that point, I realized that there was so much. And, you know, it sounded like science fiction. Right. I mean, there, there were these scientists who were working on growing new human organs in the lab out of a person's own cells. And like it, it, it sounded sort of like, wow, that's crazy. Can, can that really work? Um, but it was real and true. And um, 
And so I figured, well, somebody should write about this from a, from a policy perspective and a cultural perspective in terms of, you know, well, if we can repair ourselves when we start to deteriorate, how does that change the world? And, and that's really what 100 plus is about. Can you talk to me about the difference between computer programming, which is in zeros and ones, and the human genome programming or reprogramming? Because that's four different proteins. And I'm trying to, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's my understanding of it. I'm trying to figure right. out where the similarities and differences would be in, your, in, in trying to, to hack the human genome. <laughs> well, that friend of mine did indeed go on and start a biotech company, and he's doing quite well <laughs> um, uh, here in the Bay Area. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, computer programmers use ones and zeros, and uh, scientists are using the A, C, T, and G of DNA. And um, but it's not just that; it's much more complicated. There's, um, you know, the body is a very complicated system. And so there's, there's genes, there's the epigenome, there's, you know, and there's all these proteins in our body. And there, there's a lot of different substances inside who make us, that make us what we are. Um, and so it's, uh, it's taking time to figure out how to hack all of that. Uh, um, but, but scientists are making progress and it's, it's moving along faster. You know, one of my friends who's a scientist says it moves faster uh, than we think it will, and it moves slower than we think it will. But it it, it is moving forward. So when you first did the book, what, what kind? What was the promising technology back in in two thousand and eleven? What what and 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 did it pan out? Like when you were writing through your science chapters and you were looking at the things that were emerging at that time, what what actually ended up materializing as aha? That was right, and what was no? That's a dead end. Right. Yes. No, that's a very good question. Um, so regenerative medicine was the really trendy, cool thing back then. There were a number, there still are a number of scientists working on regrowing human parts in the lab out of a person, out of an adult person's own adult stem cells. Um, so, you know, back then it was experimental that they were growing, um, you know, they were, they were growing everything really, but like blood vessels and hearts, heart parts, lungs, um, tracheas. And, and, and back then they had, they, in 2011, uh, when the, when the book came out, um, uh, grown tracheas had actually been implanted in real people and, um, and were successful. And then they had some problems. I mean, every time there's, um, there's a new technology, it never goes completely smoothly. Like gene therapy, for instance, if you look back at the history of gene therapy, um, you know, they, they had a really big success when they like cured bubble boy disease, but, but then the, the kid got cancer. And so, and, 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 and at that point they were like, oh, gene therapy. Okay. It was obviously it's not going to work, but that's not true. They just, they, they, they had some problems in the beginning and then they honed the technology and, and now gene therapy is working on all sorts of things, including uh, cure, curing childhood blindness, which is really quite incredible in real people. Like this is not. Um, and, and, and actually, that was um, already real when I wrote the book back in 2011. There's a number of children who have been cured uh, with, uh, with gene therapy of, of blindness. So, so let's talk about what gene therapy is, because it's interesting when you look at the, when you, when you were writing the book, you were talking about longevity, and we'll talk more about longevity in a moment. But I, I think that there's an ethical issue when you start talking about extending life versus curing disease. I think there's a, a, a world of difference and you will get 100% of people saying, I'm on board with making sure that the young, that young child isn't blind or we can cure that particular disease in them so they can live a full life. But it starts getting a little bit creepy for people when you start saying, well, can we live to 
100 or 200 or 300 or even as some analysts are predicting a thousand years old and would we even want to but but i want to make sure that we separate these two out so first let, let's talk a, a bit about the when we're talking about gene therapy for um for for regenerative purposes and curing of, of disease are there any moral issues that we face around that or is that just going to be fairly routine in the future that that will just be oh well I was born with this particular predisposition. I'm just going to go in and little edit, and then I won't have to worry about dying of, of that particular disease. Is that what the future looks like? Oh, I think so. I mean, there's always oh. going to be small, very tiny percentages of people who um, disagree with pretty much anything, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's pretty hard to uh, to argue with um, you know helping a kid get over a disease that's debilitating and and it robs them of their future. But is that is that what the future does look like? Because of course we've got a publicly funded healthcare system, so that can't even perform the the mundane procedures that we have right now. You've got a lot more innovation where you are in the United States because you do have a robust private sector and and tons of medical research. And so I guess this is the the question that you come down to: if you're going to have a public payer of sorts, or you're going to socialize medicine in some way through a private insurance system. Are these some of the challenges that we're going to have to be talking about is who who gets it and who doesn't? Oh, yes. I think those things will come up for you. But, you know, if we go back to the blindness issue, you know, curing kids of blindness is amazing and it's a great thing to do. Why wouldn't we want to cure an older person of blindness, too, when they start to get when their when their eyes start to you know go downhill? I mean, we're all we, there's already surgeries for that. And um, it, it's I mean, to me, that's ageism. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, you know, are old people worth less? And in fact, you could say they're worth more because they have a lot of experience. Right. And and we would hate to lose that. Um, but but well, yes, that, that will be that will be a conversation for the future that that probably will will be had. Let me you know, just because it's the I'm thinking of the moral issues that have been raised that might have stunted some of the discussion and development of of these uh, technologies is that I remember in the 2000s, there was the big concern about designer babies, about being able to do uh, gene editing in utero so that your child wouldn't be born with certain predispositions. And it's funny, I think we, I almost felt like that was decided by parliament. They said, no, we're not going to do it. And then it was kind of put on a shelf and nobody talked about it again. Where is that discussion at? Where where are we at in from the technology point of view in yeah, being able to do that? That's a good question. Um, you know, designer babies already exist here in the United States. Um, if you're if you're trying to, um, I mean, not at the level where you're going in and uh, and designing before the egg gets created, but people who are doing IVF will create a bunch of eggs and then have them tested and choose the one that has the combination that they're looking for. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's already here. Um, I, I don't think people are really talking about that anymore, though. I, it, it's interesting how it sort of came up and then blew away. And maybe it's because, you know, parliaments and various uh, lawmakers uh, made decisions on it. And, and then that was it. So, so I guess the thing that comes to my mind is I, I have had friends who've had um, family history of certain genetic diseases. Huntington's is the one that comes to mind. And yes, that's a bad one. Are we are we in a position where with the gene editing technology that we have now, that if somebody does get the diagnosis, because you get a blood test and you know whether you've got it or not, can that, can that be cured or is that still in the future? 
Not yet. There are mm-hmm. researchers working and Huntington seems like it should be one of the easier ones mm-hmm. to cure, actually, because it's a single it's a single gene mutation. Um, and I've met some of the researchers who were working on it, and they're making progress. But for some reason, they have not, um, at least to my knowledge, they haven't uh, they haven't figured out the the fix yet. Okay, let's then talk about longevity because I, I think it, it I think we've seen as well through the COVID era, especially with the announcements of of some of the tragic deaths that have occurred. We we they often in at least in our jurisdiction they talk about the age of the person who has died, and I I'm sort of s- struck by how many people are in their late nineties or 106 or 103, and it used to be pretty unfamiliar and rare for people to live to, to that age. It's actually becoming pretty routine. So when, when, when you wrote the book in 2011, I'm not sure if that was the case, but it, it does seem like we have achieved the idea and expectation that a lot of us should be able to live to the, to the age of 100. But it makes me wonder what is practically possible in our time horizon? How, how much can we extend longevity, do you think, based on, what, on the research you've done and what you've seen in the last 10 years? Yeah, well, a medicine keeps getting better and better every year. Um, and as that happens, uh, people can live longer and longer and hopefully healthier and healthier because the goal really is not to live a long time. Mm-hmm. The goal is not to extend lifespan per se. The goal is actually to extend health span. Everybody wants to live healthier for a longer period of time. They don't really want to live long and just be sick or something. So um, so I like to talk about health span rather than, rather than lifespan. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of a number of technologies. So many, <laughs> we couldn't cover them all. Um, that can that are already allowing people to live longer and healthier lives. Just yesterday, actually, I went in for my annual physical, and they did my they took my blood. And um, one of the things that's added to my uh, my annual test every year now is this uh, gallery test by the company Grail. And Grail is a blood test that tests for cancer. So. Hmm. Um, so they're going to look at my blood and it's going to come back and they're going to be, if, if I had cancer, uh, they will come back and tell me what kind it is and where it is based on one blood test, which is, and think about, so this is an incredible technology because not only can it catch it very early before a tumor is even noticeable and under a scanning machine. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it, 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 when it does that, we, we, we can cure it quicker and faster Mm And we save so much money for the healthcare system. So this is the thing about longevity technologies is not only will they allow people to live longer and healthier lives, but they're going to save our healthcare systems a lot of money. And so countries with socialized medicine like Canada should be all over this technology because this is going to allow their socialized medicine systems to live. Otherwise, they're going to drown the way that they're um, the way that they're operating now. That's remarkable because I, I guess I was wondering if all the additional testing would be so expensive that no. it would divert money away from treatment. But you've just made such a good case that you'll save more money in the long run. What? How? How? How much is a, a test like that? It sounds like it's. Uh, it must be fairly routine if it's if it's if it's in your annual physical. It's it must be be becoming very common. Well, no, the Grail test has only been on the market for two years. I got okay. it last year when it first hit the market. Um, I know the person who started the company because <laughs> that's what I, I'm, I'm embedded in the longevity community. Uh, Jeff Huber, uh, who used to be a Google guy, actually, and which is further proof that um, you know longevity is becoming an engineering project. Um, so uh, 
you know, I don't think the grail test is routine for everybody in the United States yet. I mean, it's still, yeah. And this is, this is the trend with every single new technology that comes out, including gene sequencing uh, technologies. I have a, I have a slide when I, when I give a presentation on my book about, you know, and this goes back to the earlier um, thing I mentioned about, you know, when the human genome was first sequenced, you know, every, we have the code to life, everybody's genome is going to get sequenced and then we'll know everything about them. And, and, then I remember like 10 years later after that, in 2010, the New York Times wrote this article um, saying, you know, it's been 10 years since the human genome was sequenced and nothing has happened. This thing obviously doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like, well, really? <laughs> no, that's not the correct conclusion. <laughs> it actually does matter. Um, let me tell you why nothing has happened because it was so expensive mm -hmm. in the beginning to sequence a, hum a single genome like I think, how much did it cost them? It was two point six billion or something for the first one. Well, when it costs that much, you're not going to do everybody's genome. Um, and then it got a little bit cheaper. Then it was like a hundred thousand. It was like a million, and then it came down to a hundred thousand, and then it came down to ten thousand. And that was about the time when I started seeing people I knew around here thinking, "Oh, maybe I'll get my genome mm. sequenced." And then, and then it shot down to a thousand dollars, and you could get your entire genome sequence for a thousand dollars. And now it's a little less than that. It hasn't quite. Uh, you know, it could go uh, cheaper than that and people are working on it. But but this is the thing. Every new technology is very, very expensive when it first come, comes out and eventually it gets cheaper. Just sort of, it's sort of like the Moore's law in, in computer science where things, um, they're expensive at first and then they get cheaper and cheaper over time. Um, so back to the Grail test. The Grail test right now is like 960 bucks. So, you know, I can afford to pay 960 bucks to get my blood checked, but not everybody can. Um, and, uh, but, but, but the price will come down as, as they, as they refine their technology and as they get better at doing what they're doing, it's going to become cheaper and it will be the standard of care. So talk to me about the new future for, for healthcare, because if we're getting to a point where you can get your own genome sequenced, if you, I would imagine that would be your starting point. And that would give you an idea of the things that you've got to look for as uh, yeah. as you age that you, you, you're going to have to test for, because if you've got a predisposition to cancer, you'll want to take the, the grail test. Um, what, what are the, some of the other things that you would do if, tell, tell me, tell, just paint that picture for me. If you, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. You... And, and I've also personally done that myself where I got, I got my, um, I got my genome sequenced. I did it through George Church's company, but there's a, there's a number of companies that do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, then my doctor got a hold of it. And of course, doctors, part of all of this, part of the clunkiness of this being rolled out to consumers or patients, as you might call them <laughs> in Canada, um, uh, is that uh, the doctors, went, when they went through medical school, genome sequencing wasn't a thing. And so they have to kind of, you know, they're supposed to do continuing education and everything, but they have to kind of wrap their heads around, oh, there's this new thing. I have to figure it out. I have to figure out what it means for my patients and, and, and on and on. So um, so I got my whole genome and it's a lot of data and they sent it to my doctor and she does keep up with things. Um, and, uh, and she did a, a, a great job going through it. And, you know, there were, there were two things that she was, that she was concerned about. Um, you know, one of them was iron. I guess I have some propensity to like collect too much iron in my body, which is bad because iron is, you know, when iron oxidizes it, um, it ages you. So like, this is oxidative stress theory, right? Um, and, and so she had all these uh, recommendations for me based on my, based on my genome and things that we're going to look out for. And then things that we don't have to look out for, because mm -hmm. I had some markers that were like, okay, I have some markers that make me, um, 
make it look like, I mean, you know, and the research is continually changing, by the way. Their research scientists are constantly finding out what new areas of the genome mean for, for, for health. So none of this is really set in stone and does require constant learning. But, um, you know, it looks like I'm good on the cardiovascular stuff. So I'm like, oh, excellent. <laughs> I don't have to worry about that too much. Um, you know, and, and then we back that up with, uh, now there's these uh, full body scans that you can get, like um, an MRI. And in fact, there's one in, are you in Vancouver, Daniel? No, I'm in, Cal I'm in Calgary area. Okay, okay. Well, your, your listeners who are in Vancouver, or you could fly to Vancouver, um, there's a great company called Prenuvo, uh, which I'm invested in, by the way. Um, so uh, um, everyone should know that. Um, and there's other companies that are doing this a similar thing, but it, it's a full body scan where you go in and they do a full body uh, MRI and they can see tumors if you have them. Uh, they, can, they can see um, just a whole bunch of things that matter for your health. And I just went in for that this week too. This is my week for, uh, for my physical stuff. That's <laughs> and, you know, and, do, and the do, cool thing about yeah. doing that, by the way, so they can see uh, you know, what, your, um, what your brain tissue looks like. And so over time, if your gray matter starts to shrink, this is concerning because it might mean that you're get, getting ready to get dementia or something like that. And so it's, you don't want to just do one body scan and then never do it again. You actually want to do it every year so you can see how your body's changing over time. And that can give you clues as to how you should change your lifestyle or what different medicines you should take or, you know, how you should live your life in a better way. It sounds, it sounds amazing. I, I wonder about that first step though, because I have to imagine that there's a little bit of anxiety while you're waiting for the results to come back from the analysis. And, or do you get a sense of peace once you know what you can't? Oh no, it's total peace, right? I mean, when my grail test comes back and says, you don't have cancer, I'm like, ah, I'm good. Like I, I'm kind of happy for the next year, right? Until I go do it again. <laughs> so I guess this is the question. It's funny because healthcare is not really healthcare. I think they've often no, talked about it being- care. It is. Yeah. So we, we've taken the approach of go along, do your thing, sleep well, eat well, exercise, and just watch for lumps or changes in this, that, or the other thing. And then come to us if, you're, if you start seeing some symptoms. So we, we tend to wait to do any kind of healthcare until a problem is manifested. And when a problem is manifested- It's the it, wrong model. Yeah. Well, because it, I would imagine now you're at a point where it's more expensive to treat and you may not have the best, the best outcome. So what That's is right. the what is the paradigm shift that needs to happen in in healthcare? Because I think the other side, if if I can remember some of the old arguments, it, there was this worry initially about mapping the genome because if insurance companies got a hold of that data, then they would use that to demonstrate that you had a pre existing condition and exclude you for those conditions. So people were quite worried about their private health information being used against them in that kind of environment. How, how is that issue being resolved or? I mean, you look at it from the positive it, it, side. Then, it was then... resolved here in the United States because Congress passed a bill not allowing uh, or disallowing uh, companies to do that. So you can't do that. You but also, that. I could imagine it might allow you to risk rate lower if there's certain things they can rule out as well. Yeah, I don't think they do that, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they no. only risk rate higher. Yeah. Or yeah. what? Yeah. Yeah, oh. it's, it's not a fully, it's not a functioning market. The healthcare system in the United States also needs to be revamped because like you say, I mean, everything was kind of based on sick care rather than healthcare. And, and the reason for that is because we didn't have a lot of preventative tools at our disposal, but, but now we're getting them. And th that's why this revolution is really coming because all these new tools that we didn't have access to before are now suddenly here. 
Let's talk then about some of the other tools. We talked a bit about regenerative medicine. I think I get that. That's the idea. And it makes a lot of sense that if you can get an actual match for your body because you're using stem cells to grow a new organ so that you don't end up with rejection, that makes total sense to me. Gene therapy, we've talked about that also. If you've got some predisposition and you're able to modify the genes so that that doesn't manifest, also makes perfect sense. But there's a couple of other areas that we haven't gotten into. Let's talk, uh, I hope I've written this down right, senolytics. Is that one of the new areas? What is that? Tell us what it is. Um, So, uh, and that was very trendy, I would say like a year or two ago. (laughs) These science kind of goes through these things where everybody focuses on one one area at a time. But um, yes, Unity was the big company that everybody was uh, interested in. Jeff Bezos had invested in it and a number of other sort of famous people. And um, uh, it's this, uh, so Senolytics uh, are a class of drugs that help clear out old cells that are in your body. So, you know, as your cells, you know, work and age and get old, they kind of, you know, your body tends to clear them out. But as you get older, your body does, um, it's less efficient at clearing out the old cells. And so they just kind of hang out and create and excrete all these inflammatory um, uh, molecules that age you even further. And so the theory is, is that if you can use drugs to clear out this junk that's inside of your body, uh, then you can be healthier for longer periods of time. And it's a great theory and, and it works in animals. And so it, the, there's a proof of concept and it, you know, it's a real thing. So now the question is, well, how do we do it safely in humans? And that's uh, the race is on for that. There's a number, oh gosh, probably at least 20 companies or more uh, working on the right combination of, uh, of drugs to properly clear out old cells from your body. And when, and when they're successful, because they will, somebody will be, um, it'll, it'll be incredible. Though I'm thinking of, I don't know if that offers a solution. And so the first for, test cases for this, by the way, are like yeah. arthritis. You okay. Know, you get all this inflammatory stuff happening in your, like for me, I have a big toe that has arthritis and I would love to get some injection of a senolytic to kind of like help, huh. uh, help, help mitigate that or turn it around. Oh, that makes sense. My dad's got arthritis in his neck. So rather than getting yeah. cortisone shots, he would be able to get a yeah. senolytic shot. Because the cortisone, what? the problem with our, see, cortisone doesn't do anything. All it does is it forces the... Well, it does something. It, it forces the tissue to uninflame, but it doesn't heal. It mm-hmm. doesn't change anything versus the senolytic would have uh, a more substantial impact on your body. What about Alzheimer's? Because Alzheimer's, I thought, was a buildup proteins in the brain. Is is senolytics offering any uh, potential solution for Alzheimer's? It might. It might. This is, well, this is the thing is it's great if you can stay physically healthy, but if it doesn't, if you're if you're losing your mental capacity, then your brain, uh, you're talking about quality of life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, there, there's a, there's a, a company here, um, not far from where I live that's working on senolytics for Alzheimer's. And so, um, you know, and that's based on one theory of, there's very, there's many different theories about why people get Alzheimer's and, and mm-hmm. no one has really kind of won, uh, won the day on that yet because, uh, there's no cure for it yet okay. and, and no drug that even helps really. Okay. Let me ask you about uh, another area you, to- you told me about earlier, a cellular reprogramming. What is, what is that? Uh, well, uh, just what it sounds like. Uh, and this is what my friend wanted to do in the beginning is like reprogram the body basically to, um, to, uh, to become younger. So have you heard of the Yamaka factors? No. Um, so there's this uh, scientist in Japan who uh, discovered how to turn back the clock on a cell. So um, he could take an adult cell and uh, add these factors to it. And when, once he does that, it turns back into a young version of itself. And, um, and it's not, 
it's not the same as completely turning it into a, the, the key with this is that he didn't turn it all the way back to where it was undifferentiated. He just turned it back to where it was just a younger. So if it was a lung cell, for instance, he, the yamaka factors would help it turn it back into just a younger lung cell, not the embryonic stage where it doesn't even know what it is yet. So imagine, so he, and he has done this successfully in the lab and won a Nobel prize for it. Um, and so the theory, you know, and, and so then they've tried this on animals, on living animals to see if you could, if you could turn back the clock. And it turns out that it's, it's kind of working. And so, so then the question is, wow, well, if it works on animals, maybe it'll work on humans. And we could, we could do this kind of change uh, to real people and just turn back every cell in your body into a younger 18 year old version of you, right? And how cool would that be? And so uh, you've probably heard of Altos Labs. If you haven't, you should look it up. Uh, it's a $3 billion company that just got funded uh, by Jeff Bezos and a bunch of other people. Um, Yuri Milner is a big Facebook uh, guy and a Facebook investor um, to work on this problem of how to get cellular reprogramming to work in, in human beings. Does it work in other animals? I guess I'm thinking that um, you've got worms who you can cut in half and they grow <laughs> they grow back and you've got tortoises that can live for hundreds of years. I think there's some other reptiles who can live for hundreds of years. So there's obviously some genetic factor that they have that we don't. Is that what we do? Do we borrow from what we see that exists in nature or is this totally... Is this well, just no, new technology? Not, not at not all? The, not the way they're thinking of doing it. Um, but you're right that it's, uh, the borrowing from nature is more sort of the regenerative medicine stuff. Okay. So like when we see, you know, some salamanders or whatever, you cut off their arm and it grows back. Um, so the regenerative medicine guys who are working on, you know, who really have truly, they've regrown fingers. Um, so they, they've made some progress. Uh, and that was back in 2011, they had regrown oh. fingers and so using this uh, extracellular matrix. And so basically using, but they don't quite understand, they know how to make it happen, but they don't quite understand how it happens. And so that's still, um, you know, there's still a lot of questions, but, but, you know, there's this progress and this is sure a lot better than, you know, what we knew 20 years ago. I've made one more note of a different area, small, you're going to have to say this area, small molecule, because I can't read my last, the last word. It looks like small molecule plugs, but that's not it. Drugs. Small drugs. Thank drugs. you. Yeah. So what is that? <laughs> what is the, what is this new field? Well, there's, there's a whole bunch of new small molecules to do various different things. And so, um, okay. Uh, mm uh, Boy, there's so many different examples I could give you. I'm, I'm just sort of struggling about which one, uh, which one to do because small molecules can do many different things inside your body. Well, what and is so a small molecule compared to like a normal molecule? What is the what is the even the science behind that? What does it even mean? Oh, what does well, it it's to? just a very small molecule that can go into places that you know larger molecules can't. And so, for instance, like I invested in a uh, mitochondria company. So mitochondria uh, are sort of the energy centers of your um, of your cells. And uh, one of the theories of aging is that your, your mitochondria start to get weak. And if we can, mm -hmm. um, if we can bolster mitochondria, uh, then, you know, obviously we, we have a lot more energy and the body could be more efficient and um, things would operate better. And so, the, which is probably one of the many prongs of how we conquer um, the problem of aging. So uh, they're, for instance, they're developing a small molecule drug uh, that is a version of a different drug that already exists that we know works, but is a little bit, um, a little bit poisonous. 
So they're trying to redo it so that it works without being poisonous. And so, so like, like that's one example, or there's another company that I know about that's doing, um, uh, trying to fix muscle wasting, um, which is a really big problem for elderly people. And again, small molecules that help uh, create proteins that help um, repair the muscles. You've got us excited about this because we're all thinking about family history of things that we might end yeah. up developing and how we might be able to avoid the manifestation of that and maybe even live uh, healthier lives for a longer period of time. Now, when does it start becoming problematic from a public policy point of view? Because we know that we're, we're facing pressure uh, for, especially from the environment, the environmental community is very concerned that we're all, the world's already overpopulated, that we are using too many resources. And what happens if we end up having a larger number of births because people are able to have more kids over a longer period of time, and then a lower number of deaths on an annual basis? I, I think we all of our projections suggest the world population is going to cap out at. 10 billion and then start declining at some point, if you're, if you're, if you're changing both of those aspects in theory, I guess the world population could just keep growing and growing and growing or could it? Well, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen with the population, but world population growth rates have actually been tanking for a number of years. And, um, most of the research shows that as people get wealthier, they tend to have fewer kids. Hmm. Um, and so fertility, as the world gets wealthier, and it has been, uh, fertility rates are tanking, even in places like Saudi Arabia, which is you know, surprising. Um, and so if that trend continues, despite the fact that people can have children, you know, it's a question of what you think will happen. Like, will people have kids when they're young and then wait a really long time and then have them again when they're old? Or will they just put off having kids for a really long time and have them, hmm. you know, or maybe just keep putting them off and putting them off and not having them, right? And so there's there's a lot of different scenarios that can happen, and I, which I think makes it really, really difficult to predict what will happen. Um, but when I tried to answer this question for my book, because I have an entire uh, chapter on the environment, um, I went and looked. So Sweden has all this amazing data that demographers really love because they collect everything and it's all organized. And so they do everything on the country of Sweden. And... Um, I found some researchers at the University of Chicago, some epidemiologists who um, took a look at Sweden and said, okay, well, if Sweden were to become immortal tomorrow, like nobody ever dies of anything, not even car crashes, which of course is ridiculous because even if you could live forever, you'd still get, you could still get hit. You would get hit by a bus at some point. There's the probability you, at some point it would happen. Um, but uh, so let's, let's assume that everybody could be immortal um, in the country of Sweden. Uh, what would happen to population growth over the next hundred years? Mm -hmm. And so they took like the World Bank model, they took the UN model and put in all the data. Um, and it turns out that over the next hundred years, if Sweden were immortal, population would only grow by 22%, hmm. which, you know, I mean, that's something that, but it's not nearly as much as you would think it would be kind of like just thinking about these things. Um, and you know, when I, when I call them up and ask them about it, they say, well, the thing that everyone gets wrong is that, uh, they don't understand that births are exponential, uh, and, and deaths are not. Hmm. So like when one person doesn't die because they got some therapy, it's only one person, but when somebody decides to have children, they have multiple children, you know, like well, three, four, five. And so the thing that really pushes population growth is not fewer deaths. It's more births. So the thing that matters the most is will people have more children 
as they can live longer and healthier mm-hmm. lives. And I think I think that's a that's a question that's up for debate. I don't I don't I honestly don't I, I can't pick a side because I, I think it could go either way. Well, it does. You you begin. What I've always worried about, if we ever could sort of cure aging and death, is does that then invite the government in to regulate that the number of people who are allowed to be born in a year and who gets a license to be allowed to have a birth? And you can only have a birth if you have a corresponding death. That's that's I guess sort of the dystopian world. Oh my world god! I should hope about, not. Right? But you know what? I mean, China tried to do something like that, right? Not quite that way, but they uh, they said you can only have one child, and that really screwed up their society. Do you, do you have um, any sense of give me because you talked about uh, people being able to plan their their uh, the the growth of their family? You might be able to have them younger. You could have them older. Are you beginning to see that? Are there are there changes in technologies that allow for men and women to push? having child a childbearing off until much later in life. I mean, I oh, think absolutely. one of the examples you gave was a, a 70 year old woman having a child with a 90 year old man. And I don't know if you were being, uh, if you were saying that as a, for instance, that could happen one day, or are we actually on a track where that could happen one day? <laughs> actually, that could happen today, which, which I hate to say, because the um, yeah, reproductive technology has, uh, because there's so much interest in it, has really um, moved forward very at a, at a quick pace. And so, you know, a man could like freeze his sperm and, um, you know, the egg, egg freezing uh, technology is much better now than it used to be. There used to be a problem with egg freezing because eggs have a high water content. Mm. And when you froze them, uh, you know, when you freeze something, it ex- the, uh, the water expands and it, it breaks, the, it could break the cellular structure of the egg. And, and often eggs didn't survive after they were frozen. And so it really wasn't a good uh, way to protect your fertility. Um, a while ago, but they've they've gotten much better at it now, and um, and they're having a lot more success. So you really, you but you would have to plan this ahead, mm-hmm. you know, freezing your egg or your sperm, and then potentially you could do it, assuming you're still healthy enough to actually have children <laughs> and wanted them at age seven. Yes, and do you really want kids at ninety? I mean, I have two kids, and I can barely keep up with them now, and I'm in my forties. Tell me where you where you see some of the policy issues becoming really complicated, and maybe it's that we have to to sort of frame out how the Canadian paradigm is different than the American paradigm, because there there does seem to be a lot more freedom in the U.S. Certainly, a lot more research. Whereas Canada, when we talk about healthcare, we're really very concerned about queue jumping, and we don't want somebody who has money to get something and some form of treatment that those who don't have the money wouldn't be able to. And I, I'm wondering how you see that evolving. What, what, what happens in a Canadian context as these technologies come on stream? What does that mean about how they could be integrated into a, into a system like Canada has? Well, I think now, I mean, the way I see it, as somebody who lives in the United States and knows Canadians, I mean, the, the wealthy people still get the, the, the services they want. They just come down here. Or they go somewhere else uh, and then they go back to Canada for all their free stuff. And so um, it's not Canadians haven't actually figured out a solution to stop that. Um, but uh, sorry. I'm just wondering if it breaks the system. I mean, at some point, can a, a publicly funded system pay for all of these innovations that are coming along? There's sort of a two aspects that are at play. So there's an equity when they first come on stream, but then the the prices keep on coming down and, and some of them you would want to make available to everyone like that oh, yes. simple well, like I, said, I mean, 
Canada, Canada can't afford not to use these technologies. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the, the ability to, for instance, like we said earlier, to, to spot cancer before it becomes stage two, three, or four would save epic amounts of money. Or imagine if you could repair somebody's heart before they have a heart attack and they have to have the expensive ambulance come and be put in the hospital for days and, and have all the medicine that is pumped into their body that isn't actually fixing them anyway. And, you know, like if you could repair that before it even happens, think how much money you would save for the healthcare system. I mean, this is, if you were a supporter of socialized medicine, you should be a supporter of longevity technologies because it's going to save those systems. It's going to make it cheaper. So I'm imagining that there's some traditionalists out there because I, I, I know that there's some level of discomfort that we've had over the last number of years talking about from time to time, whenever a new technology comes up, there's sort of a, a that Luddite sort of, a, do we want to do this? Should we be messing around with this? Is this an appropriate use of, of, of technology? And I, I'm wondering how, how you, do you, do you see, do you see any of the downsides of being able to uh, use these technologies, expand life? Is there, what kind of, what kind of, what is the most uh, disruptive societal change is, do you think will come from that? I think the most disruptive, I mean, I think there's two things that could be problems as they move along, but I still think they're better than death. <laughs> um, I think, I think the, the first problem is uh, it'll, it'll be weird integrating or having uh, people with large age gaps working together in the workforce. Hmm. So you could imagine some like 22 year old uh, having to be on a team, say at Facebook with a 110 year old who, and they had, they share no cultural history whatsoever. And, you know, the 110 year old is probably like, oh, you have no experience. Right. And the 22 year old is like, oh, you're stuck in your old ways. And you, you could just imagine how there could be a lot of tension between the generations working together. So I, I, I think that that actually will be a problem. Um, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with. Um, but it's probably not that big. It, it's solvable. Right. Um, and then I think the other problem is depending on how different technologies are rolled out, I think there could be an, there could be an equity problem hmm. where, like I say, you know, like the grail test is almost a thousand dollars right now. And I don't know how long it's going to be between now and when that test is 50 bucks, right? If, if it, if it shoots down to 50 bucks or a hundred bucks in, I don't know, in the next six or seven years, that would be great. But maybe it'll take them longer to refine their technology mm -hmm. and like, and then maybe it'll stay up there for, for a while. And while that's happening, you know, there'll be some people who can afford to catch their cancer earlier and there'll be some people who can't. And, and so I think that that is a problem um, or a potential problem for, for some technologies. And so it, I think it's something we just have to look out for. And, you know, to the extent that government has a rule, maybe government, or at least in the United States and Canada, everybody has to be the same. But in the United States, you could say, well, you know what, um, well, you know, the rich people can obviously pay for this, but the poor people can't. So we'll, we'll give them, we're going to give them like little voucher, grail vouchers so mm -hmm. they can go and get this done because it's worth us doing that because it'll save the system so much money. So talk to me a bit about the, the I thought you raised an interesting example of having the 110 year old working with the 22 year old. I, I think there is this 
fear, and you should tell me if you if you see this playing out in practice, when Barack Obama left office, one of the things that he raised was this concern that technology, AI, machine learning, and robotics, that it was going to destroy more jobs than it was going to create. And I think he looked at, at the Rust Belt states and the mass unemployment and disruption that happened there and thought, mm, that, that might help happen elsewhere. And this whole notion of a fourth industrial revolution, I think, is based on that premise, that what are we going to do when robots Bots and AI and machine learning take all of our jobs. So layer on what you're talking about, what are we going to do when there's fewer jobs and that 110 year old just won't leave it to make room for the younger people <laughs> coming up? So, so that I guess you know you never know what the future is going to look like. But that is one of the the issues that I that I think pe people are, are concerned about. They're concerned that technology is going to create fewer opportunities rather than more. What do you see from your standpoint? Well, yeah, that's a really big question, and uh, probably like that could fit into a three, three or four more shows. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, you know, I, it, it, when when that happens, because certainly it will happen to some extent. It's probably not going to be as bad as um, you know people are worried about. But um, but the the economy will continue to change, and, and you know, change is a fact of life. Um, and as long as it doesn't come too quickly, everybody can adjust. So. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think it's something that we can deal with. Um, but yeah, it, it could be a problem. Some of the other concerns I, I think you you get that got point that you pointed on your book, those who, who think that maybe we shouldn't go and do this is the, the impact it might have on work effort. I mean, heck, if you can wait until you're 70 to have kids, or you can wait until you're, um, if you have the ability to, to, to save money and keep on working up until you're 120, does, does that then actually have the opposite effect of maybe we, we, we won't have enough people wanting to get educated, strive harder, be entrepreneurial? Is there any evidence that the notion that you could extend life is going to be a dampener of all of the things that we value about what's already happening in the tech space, that, 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 uh, that drive to, to, to try to find that new innovation? Is there, is there enough evidence that you'd be seeing that? No, I think it's the exact opposite, actually. When it, so when I was... Uh writing about that bit in my book, um, I, in, I interviewed a, a, an economist at George Mason and, um, and he said to me, he said, well, he's like, he's like, if I thought, you know, he was in his fifties and he's like, he's like, if I thought I had like another 50 years instead of, he's like, I probably only have another 10 years left in my career. And then, then I got to get out of here. Right. Um, he's like, so since I only have, ten, he's like, I don't, that's not enough time for me to, come up with any Nobel prize winning material. That's not enough time for me to like really dig in and do something new and innovative because I, it, it's, it, I just have a short amount of time left. And since I only have a short amount of time left, I'm just going to focus on teaching and, you know, doing some of the stuff I already know. And so he actually saw it. And I, I think a lot of people see it that way. If you don't have time and you, you see that you're sort of coming to your end, why bother start something new? Right. I mean, there's always the, those few that keep on producing and producing and producing, but um, and, and the other thing uh, that has that, uh, that works into this is this idea of innovation and how, uh, you know, innovation is actually a late peak field. It peaks around 40 if you if you dig into the literature, um, despite all these you know, examples of some young tech people we we, we know. Um, uh, but and, and then it starts to decline after 40. And one of the theories behind why it declines is because people are starting to get sort of get older and sicker. And if you could put up, put that old and oldness and sickness off for a while and allow people, you know, 
once you hit 40, you've, you've had, you've had enough life to see the connections between things that other people who are younger don't see. Mm -hmm. Um, and what, so sort of once you hit that point, if you can be healthier for a longer period of time, you could actually have more time to innovate and innovation sh would probably blossom if we could, if we could make the worst workforce workforce <laughs> healthier for longer periods of time. I, I suspect we're going to see some, I know that you're, you're in the investment space, but I can't help but think about the impact this is going to have on, on politics that those who have conservative values and traditional values and want to see people get married and pair bond and have families and, you know, the young people take care of their seniors as they age, it kind of gets blown out of the water when you're thinking, okay, do I want to get married at 20 if I'm going to have to stay married till I'm 120? And yeah. how many kids do we end up having in that period of time? Maybe if we're, we only want two or three kids, maybe you don't get married until you're a, a, a lot older. So it seems to me that that will be could potentially be very disruptive to some of the traditional family structures that we developed over over the last number of, of, of centuries and millennia. Maybe um, you know I I, th I think what it does is it, it it opens this door to a lot more diversity. So there's mm -hmm. a lot more choices and a lot more um, combinations that you could see, right? As you live longer, you can get married even more times and have great larger extended families and um, yeah, and all that. So I guess somebody who somebody who if in if in a traditional sense just doesn't want the world to change, mm -hmm. um, yeah, this is not gonna be good for them. Well, I guess that's the interesting part is what I've seen over the past couple of years is of COVID is that the, the world is really divided into two types of people. There, there are those who are um, a bit more innovative, more risk-taking, more prepared to be independent, make their own choices. But then there's, a, I think, a much larger group. I'd probably put it at a 30-70 split that want to be taken care of, want stability, want security. And the world that you're painting is not one of stability and security. It's one of, of, of potentially constant change and where you've got to be thinking, I'm not going to have a job for life. I might have multiple careers. I might not have a marriage for life. I might have multiple marriages. There's there's a It, it, it sounds like it's a, it would be very challenging to those who just, who, who do have a, a more traditional and conservative type of a, a of approach to, to how they want to live their well, life. I mean, it's it's already true that the world is constantly changing, and that you already have to have multiple different jobs. And so, I, I'm not sure that the the level. I mean, I guess if you look at all of it all at once, it can be overwhelming. But the reality is, is people sort of go on and do what they're going to do regardless, you know, per, so one of the things I looked into actually, when I, when I was writing the book is, is the, will political views change? Mm -hmm. um, and what are the factors that, uh, that go into your political views and all of the research and the experts I talked to um, sort of, it, it, it came down to, uh, you know, political views are actually fairly constant through someone's lifespan. And once they have them, they just kind of stick with them. Mm. And, and it doesn't really change all that much. And, and, I, and I found that fascinating. And so I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there's always going to be the people who don't want change. And there's always going to be the people who love change. And, and no matter what we do with living, if we can live healthier, longer lives those people are still going to be there. Like, I, I just don't think it's going to change much. It, it, change, it changes the, the expectations we'd have of government though, right? Because 
we sort of have this idea that uh, you're probably going to be able to work only until healthfully 65. Mm. Oh, yes. Well, that and, will change. Right. And so we've created an entire social structure on the basis of that, that you start going to school at age five and you graduate at uh, in grade 12 and then you take your four years of university and then you go into the workforce and you, um, you get you get a job and you buy a house and that's when you get married and you have your kids and then you work 20 or 30 years and then you retire and then you're supported until you die and you've got long-term care that has to be planned for and your pharmaceutical use would need to be planned for. The, the paradigm gets blown up when you end up with a potential lifespan of 120 years or longer. You, you don't need to have any of those rigid structures anymore. It makes it, it, makes it difficult for a government planner when, when they're trying to figure out how to, how to provide those services. Well, I'm not sure that the early age, I mean, everybody still needs to go to school. And, and in fact, we might, uh, you know, add more school hmm. at, you know, maybe not directly after grade 12. Um, but I think that as people can live longer and healthier lives, they're going to want to stimulate themselves and they're going to want to learn new things. Um, and so the market for education, uh, you know, and I'm not talking traditional education where you sit in a desk. But it might be like, you know, different types of educational experiences. Um, it's already exploding, uh, mm -hmm. but that market will continue to, uh, to grow. Um, and, and I think it'll lead to people living more fulfilled lives where they can um, really, because right now that, you know, you only have a certain amount of time and you go to college, you did something, you university, you, you come out and, um, you know, like maybe it wasn't what you really wanted to do, but you can't go back and do it because it's too late. Right. And, and, and in the, in a world where we're living longer and healthier lives, you could, you actually could go back and you could change mid career and, and, and it would be okay. And, uh, and it would be normal. It's funny because we're having this discussion about guaranteed annual income. The idea that somebody might get our guaranteed annual income at age 20 and stay on it to 120 is the kind of thing that's in my mind or someone who retires and needs income support at 65 and then is essentially living another 65 years on income support. There's, there's some, there's well, some well, changes. Welfare is never a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but there is some changes that will have to be made to, to those kind of programs. I mean, do you take the view, okay, yeah, you can go to university, but you could work 10 years before going to university. So should we be subsidizing it anymore? And should we be talking about what kind of income support that we give uh, to individuals when they, as they age, because right. do you really need to stop working at 65 if you're healthy enough to be able to work to 100? Is there some obligation on you right. to, to provide some of that income? Are, are we even prepared to have that conversation though? Oh no, those are all the conversations that need to happen. Those, those are two very good, the good points that you brought up. And already, I mean, we're already having the conversation about social security and when you should get it because already people's lives have been extended, um, you know, to the point where the system's sort of breaking. So we're kind of already there, um, but nobody wants to admit it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, you know, it, life is hard. These are, these are questions we have to address. Let's finish by talking about some of the other policy issues since we sort of delved in there. What are some of the implications of, of this research and some of the implications of the longevity uh, science successes that we're going to have on government? What, what are the kind of things that they're going to have to be thinking about from a policy point of view? I mean, we talked about a few of the consequences, but are there uh, policy enablers that, that need to be put into place? What, what would you, what, what's your prescription? Oh, well, that's an interesting question because, well, right now in the United States, um, I just helped start a group called the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives. Um, it's a lobby group that uh, is lobbying on behalf of the longevity industry uh, 
to, to uh, US, the U.S. government. And um, you know, right now uh, there's a there's a bit of a problem in that if you create an anti-aging uh, therapy or medicine, you can't get it approved by the FDA as an anti-aging product because that category doesn't exist. Hmm. Um, right. So you have this thing, but it, it, the category doesn't exist, so you can't get it approved. Problem. Right. And so the way that companies are getting around that problem right now uh, is that they're saying that their anti-aging drug is really a therapy for one of the diseases of aging. So cancer is a disease of aging, heart disease, diabetes. There's lots. Unfortunately, there's lots of diseases of aging. But these are diseases that you tend to get when you're old or not when you're young. Um, and that's how they're getting through the system and are getting approved through the system right now. But it, but it's inefficient. And it's, mm -hmm. it's something that needs to change. So um, at least here in the US, that's something that we're focused on uh, fixing so that companies don't have to um, you know, be in the closet about what they're actually doing. <laughs> it's remarkable. I'm going to have to talk to you, make a note, talk to you another 10 years from now, because the world would be, might be completely changed again from where be. we are today. Yes. It's remarkable. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. I sure appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to be here. That's Sonia Rissen. She's a technology analyst. She is the founder of 100 Plus Capital, and she's a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit fraserforum.org.